You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Chapter 23, and we'll be reading verses 9 through 22. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abithar, the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kelah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kelah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Kelah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hekeliah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have held, or you have had compassion on me. Go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it is told, it is told me that he is very cunning. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. My name is Ryan. I am one of the. Uh, Parish elders here, also over care and counseling for our church. Um, it's good to be with you this morning. Brian, uh, Brian and Justin are currently in Sheffield, England, examining another church uh, to consider for joining the CREC. So as we pray, I'd love to pray for their time, and we'll also pray for our time in this text. God, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word this morning together, to learn from it. And we thank you, Lord, that you, um, you give us grace, that you strengthen us when we are weak. And I pray that even my words this morning in preaching would not be words from my own strength, but that they'd be words uh, given by you, that you give me strength to, to proclaim this faithfully. Pray for Brian and Justin in their time in Sheffield. Pray that you would bless it. Um, and give them wisdom in some of the results they're finding from their time with Steve Timmis and their church out there. Pray all these things in your holy name, Lord. Amen. 
Okay, I am going to start with some words of summary on Psalm, I'm sorry, on 1 Samuel 23. And then we will dive into some particular places. So I'm, I'm going to summarize the entire chapter. And we heard the middle chunk. So be mindful of that and please open your Bibles if you've closed them. And we'll start with verse 1 here. So David heard in verse 1 that Philistines were oppressing Keilah. They were robbing the threshing floors. And another way to think about that is that they were giving, putting heavy taxation on this town of Keilah. And so God, David inquired of God and asked him, should I go down? Do, do we, the new Israel, need to go fight these people, defend God's people from them? And God says, yes, go attack them. Uh, all of David's soldiers say, wait, wait a minute. Um, we should be on the defense here, and you're telling us to go on the offense. Let's, let's rethink this for a moment. David considers how they are afraid, and then ultimately says, he, he inquires of God again, and God says, arise, go down to Keilah, and I will give the Philistines into your hand. And so they went, and they defeated the Philistines, they defended Keilah, while this is happening, Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David, he fled from what was just happening in the chapter before, Saul killing the priests at Nob. So, flees there. He has the ephod to come back to, but that is vestment, has the, the urim and thummim, uh, which is, can be likened to, can be in some ways equivalent, equivalent of having the Ark of the Covenant with you. So here, New Israel has the ephod. This is big. This is meaningful. And we're going to come back to that. Then, with that important side note, we see Saul hears there that David has gotten tequila, and so they go to attack them. And uh, he assumes God's providence on this situation. David is here, caught in a trap. It's like a Tom and Jerry moment. Finally, I'll be able to catch him. Um, and so he goes, plans to go to capture David. David, using the ephod by Abiathar the priest, um, he inquires of the Lord two more times and ultimately discovers that Keilah, people he had just saved, would now give David and his men into Saul's hand. So they depart. They depart peacefully. Just save these people from men's oppression by the Philistines and now they're going to be given up to them by Keilah. Uh, seemed that he would be a little more offended, but he leaves peacefully. So David then goes to the strong, strongholds in the wilderness of Ziph. And wilderness of Ziph, that can be attributed to Judah, David's own tribe. So he goes down to Judah, and Saul sought him out there every day. Two men seek Saul out. Only one of them is able to find him. Jonathan, the son of Saul, is then able to find David, but Saul is not. Saul's restlessly seeking him out, unable to find him. Jonathan, a righteous man, godly man, a man who has made covenants with David, is able to find him so that he might strengthen his hand. So that, that occurs. 
Um, come back to Jonathan in the middle of our, this time together. But then we find um, that the Ziphites, too, are willing to give David up. Whether that be out of fear or out of their own wickedness, either way, to look back on last week's sermon, uh, there is no neutral ground you stand on. You either serve the King Saul or you serve King David. And so here we see David's own tribe, the Ziphites, are willing to give him up. And so they side with King Saul, whether that be cowardly or that because of their own wickedness. And Saul then assumes, um, well, he, he blesses them by the Lord. He says, uh, thank you. And when, when you help a tyrant out, you'll notice here in the verses that follow from 22 forward, uh, he doesn't stop there. He asks you to do more for him. He says, go, go find a more specific place for me of where David is because he's sneaky. Uh, I keep trying to kill him, and for some reason he's hiding. So uh, he's sneaky. And then uh, last, we see here David has then moved to Ma'on, wilderness of Ma'on. So he's moving around to avoid Saul, and we get to a chase scene. Saul is on one side of a mountain with his large army chasing David. David's on the other side, trying to avoid getting killed by Saul. And what do we see then? The Philistines save David. It's an important sandwich to this whole text. Is that first, David goes and saves Israel from the Philistines. And then the Philistines now are saving David from Saul. Saving the true Saul, David, from Saul. And then we end... On an important note, that David then goes down to Engedi, which will later develop into a place in which uh, David famously spares Saul's life. So that's the summary. What I'd like to focus on in our time in 1 Samuel 23 is the fact that we have two kings here, and to contrast those two kings with one another again. Um, there are two kinds of kings that are being reported to. In this chapter, there are two kinds of kings who are, um, you see that they're doing something with their hands. The hands are an important point of emphasis here. And then we see that both of these kings also have speech. Words coming out of their mouth that might, both of them might sound godly. Both of them might sound like people you'd want to elect to office. Because, oh, they they sound rather Christian. Um, Seems like they'd live by similar principles. But we have to be careful because... At the end of the day, we're going to see that they have completely different hearts. So they each have men serving them, their hands, their speech. All of it says something about where their hearts are and what kind of king they are. So one, one of those kings is scrambling for self-preservation, for keeping his own status, for keeping his own power, while the other is dying to himself, while the other is trying to hide his life in God, so that he might live to God. So that's where we're going to spend time on three different points. Some clean points here for you. Um, first, we're going to take a look at those kings and their distinct desires. Then we're going to look at Jonathan. Jonathan, the friend and the son. And then we'll talk a little more about what we are to do, what this text tells us to do with our own hearts. Got it? 
Great. Okay. So we're going to pan back and forth between these two kings. And first, we're going to take a look at Saul and his own desires. So Saul uses, is using the name of the Lord as, and we'll see this in two different verses, but he uses it as synonymous with his own agenda, as synonymous with his own desires. So simultaneous events that are happening at first, uh, you, you should think about um, what's happening at Keilah. If, if you're reading it, it'll make sense when Abiathar is fleeing. He's actually fleeing from Nob, which we saw in the previous chapter, that Saul was killing priests at Nob. So these, these events probably happen, if not simultaneously, very close to each other. Saul is killing God's priests. David is saving Israel. So while, that's ha- while, while David is saving Israel, Saul is using the resources of Israel for his own personal vendetta. And uh, what starts, if you remember from back in the spring when we looked at Saul's hatred for David, what starts as a little bit of hatred, as, as his own heart brooding about um, this threat to the throne, we'll see that his own wickedness expands. It's like one of those, uh, if you ever get those expanding water toys that expands to 10 times its size, it doesn't just stay the same size. In 48 hours, it will expand. It's really amazing. It's like that, but, but when someone doubles down on their own wickedness and doesn't repent of it, that wickedness expands. It expands to where you'd be willing to kill priests, to kill God's appointed intermediaries. So Saul is becoming a more and more wicked guy. And he sought um, to satisfy his own desire for vengeance against this new king, who's expanding in his own righteousness, who's gaining a following of fugitives who are wanting to support this new Israel. So, we see now in verse verse 7, look at it with me. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. So Saul here is assuming, he's assuming that God is for him. He's assuming God's smiling providence on the situation. Um, that, that God is maybe in line with his own affections. Look again at uh, verse 21. Saul says, may you be blessed. He's talking to the Ziphites. May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. So again here, he's assuming, uh, he's, he's blessing the Ziphites for handing over this, this evil guy who must be out to take his throne and he's slapping God onto his own actions. He's using the resources of the kingdom for his own personal vendetta. And um, this tyrant, he's, he's not only turning, turning people away from God, but he's actively turning people toward himself. He's, you see this throughout First and Second Kings, how depending on what kind of king is in, in charge you either see the nation grow more righteous or more wicked. And that's, that typically starts by, by marrying those outside of Israel and then inviting other gods in. But here we see it actually happening by Saul in being so absorbed in himself that he wants other people to be absorbed with him in himself in what he wants to do with his governance. So the Keelites, I don't know if you can call them Keelites, but I, I'm going to call them that right now. Keelites and Ziphites, they're willing to play this game. 
uh, again, we come back to what Brian said last week, that there's no neutral standing. You either are siding with Saul, siding with David. And what the Kelites and the Ziphites should have known, if they were afraid of King Saul because of his size and his power, is that God always provides a way of escape from tyranny. But they were being too cowardly. They, they said, no, it's actually, we, we should rat David out. Um, and at that, have a po- couple points of observation for our own time. Uh, election season's approaching, and we see lots of officials um, or those running for office wanting to slap Bible verses on to support their own vision. Maybe just to, but just to support um, getting more clicks, getting more impressions. If I can just get that Christian crowd, uh, then they will know I'm godly. But, but that's actually not revering to God's name. You also look at this with marketing. Our own marketing schemes of our day and, and, and what our cultural voice is like right now is that we should love our neighbors. We should do the loving thing. But this is a distortion of love. Do you see that? Do you see that we need to actually ask, when, when people say love your neighbor, again, you need to ask the harder question of by what standard? What does it mean to love my neighbor? Um, you're assuming God's name. You're assuming the words that might have originated from what he has said. But do you actually want this nation, this state, this town, this county, whatever it is, do you actually want to be Christian? Do you want to draw to repentance and faith? That requires godliness. It requires repentance. And we see this also in the church. One of the concerns that a man like Saul should bring up for us is that someone can stumble into being a coward like, like the people of Ziph or the people of Keilah getting caught up in Oh, I just need to say the right things to this king in front of me. Or I need to, to get the right kind of approval here. How often is it that we ourselves assume that God is in the desires I have? That God actually wants what I want? That, that the story that I'm living, it's going in this direction, the direction I want to go, and God wants, it, wants that as well. So we need to consider that with our own, whether that be with your own family, college students, with your own roommates. Um, If they become the villain, you might need to examine your own heart. Okay, so those are a few words on Saul. Now let's look at David. Here's a leader who is truly seeking to be faithful. And he's truly, well, he, he is the true Saul. One of the things we see at the start of this chapter is that David is inquiring of God. And one of the things that there's a pun going on here in the original language uh, where David is uh, shual. That word, it sounds a lot like Saul. So David is actually doing what Saul should be doing. He is actually inquiring of God. He's seeking God out. So he is the true Saul, defending Israel from oppression, taking action when he sees that there's oppression. Um, He's leaving peacefully when Keel is willing to give him up and he's humbly seeking out the Lord's guidance do you see the contrast yet do you see again in this chapter how how Saul is restlessly trying to defeat David 
He's assuming God's with him. And David, well, he's inquiring of God. He's seeking him out. He's humbling himself before the Lord. What, what are the things amidst this that's, that David is actually looking to discern? Let's, let's bring in Abiathar and the son, the son of Ahimelech in the, the ephod. Um, so, has the ephod, he can inquire of God by this priestly garment. And there's a number of things he could have looked to discern in a moment like this. He could have said, um, can, I, can I beat Saul? Or should I wipe out these Kelahites? Um, but instead what he does is he trusts God, that he's his refuge. He remembers God's promises that he's actually been anointed to become king. And he inquires of God about whether Keilah will give him up. He leaves peacefully. David here didn't feel like there was a great um, cloud of witnesses who were living life faithfully at this point in time. But this, this part of David's life, it was not one that was easy to, to seek, to take faith in, take faith in God. And yet, he was unwilling to compromise God's purposes. He didn't lower himself. He didn't, I should say, he didn't stay on Saul's level. Because he certainly would have had the temptation to do the very same thing. He would have been tempted to fight fire with fire, but he didn't. And God blessed him in that. We see after that, as, as David is sought to be honoring to God and his purposes, we see that, that um, God actually provides a means of refreshment to his bones. And we see that primarily through Jonathan in verses 15 to 18. So um, take a brief excursus on Jonathan. Um, so here's a friendship of two God, godly people who have sought to center their lives on God. And what Jonathan has done is he has he's held an amazing tension here. He's been the son to a wicked king, to a tyrant. He's been a covenanted friend to David. He's lived in the royal household. And he's continuing to serve there. And he's somehow doing all of that. He's somehow playing all those roles. Many of us might have just quickly said, I, I can't do all of it. I'm just going to go to this one side. But Jonathan is another character who's ex- he's, it's just really striking that he would balance honoring his own father and honoring his king and yet not supporting him in evil. Nowhere do we see Jonathan actually committing evil with his father. Okay, so Jonathan knew that God would never give him up. He knew that, sorry, he knew that Jonathan, um, God would never give Jonathan more trouble than what he could actually handle. And we should learn from that for ourselves when we feel immense burden with our own responsibilities that God does not give more than he can handle. He gives a means by which to be strengthened by him. And he's also the, um, the means by which David is strengthened here. So, um, God is not a God who's, who only desires for his people to go from point A to point B, just do the right purposes and, and we'll see each other at the end. No, he, he gives 
strength throughout as we're seeking to be faithful to him. He gave strength to David through a dear friend. So both Saul and Jonathan are seeking David out, but only Jonathan finds him at Horish. Jonathan strengthens his friends, and this is a friend who truly, truly is sticking closer than a brother. Cite the proverb there. Jonathan, uh, how he strengthened him, he could have strengthened him by saying, hey, don't worry, I, I've got your back. Or, I understand how you must really be feeling right now. Or, I hear you. Um, such friends, in, in a moment like this, have to give cask strength, cask strength encouragement. Um, it has to really mean something in David's affliction. And so what does he strengthen David in? He strengthens him in God. Jonathan knew and believed the words that God had given to them. He, he remembered what happened, I believe it was back in, uh, if my memory serves me right, 1 Samuel 16, where David's anointed. He's drawing David to remember that that happened. He has been anointed. And he's, um, in, in the very least, we have verse 17 as a, as a summary statement of how he strengthened him. So it says, and he said to him, do not fear for the hand of, my, of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. Okay, so what truly strengthens? As, as you hear that, and you consider the way that you seek to encourage others, do you seek to strengthen them? Um, do you strengthen them in yourself, your own presence with them? Or maybe in how they can... If you just be yourself, you're going to do great. Um, we're, we're at a very timely uh, moment for talking about this because this, for Jonathan, would have required that he really knew his Bible, that he really knew what God had said so far. There's Bible reading challenge. If you came in late, uh, you can grab one of those uh, little plans out in the foyer lobby. Um, but to really be able to encourage a friend, to strengthen him in the Lord, you have to know what God is like, what he promises. And you have to, so you have to know God's word. You've got to be fluent in it. So Jonathan knew that. And here is um, a good friend who, though he didn't know it, in making this third or maybe fourth covenant before the Lord between him and David, uh, this was going to be the last time he saw him. Ever. Uh, the last time he saw him on this side of heaven, as he would die with Saul at the beginning of 2 Samuel. So, here are two hearts that sought to both be characters who played their roles faithfully, and they both entrusted themselves to the Lord. So that is Jonathan. Jonathan and David's friendship. So we have looked at the desires of these two kings. We've looked at... Uh, the means by which God strengthened Jonathan. And now we're going to wrap up our time in looking at the providential God who saves men like David, who saves sinners. What we had our eyes on throughout 1 Samuel um, has really been over and over this story of two types of hearts. Those who are wicked and dead and those whom God has revived from death. There's a resurrected heart in this story. 
David's own heart as he has repeatedly sought to hide himself in God. He's been saved from his enemies, but he's also been saved from himself. Um, David, he, he would have, we, I might have just mentioned this earlier, but I think it's an important point to make. He would have had the same hatred towards Saul that was sprouting in his own heart that Saul had toward David. Because we, I mean, we're, we know our own flesh. We know that we all have, that, that's a human struggle. But David dealt with that in a far different way. And so David saw that his own heart was wicked at times. And he saw here in this story, the resolve should not be the desires of his own heart. He had to lay his own heart down before God. So David's, what, what David ultimately was doing here, it, it wasn't that he was living by moralism. It wasn't that he was living by conservatism. Just government not growing too big. Um, those weren't the ideologies he had in focus here. Um, Saul saw him as, as cunning, as crafty. That's, that's how a wicked king saw him. But how, what was David actually doing there? From the perspective of David, he was denying his rightful rule again and again. He was dying to himself, dying to his own desires, fleeing, going into caves, in the wilderness, places that are places of burial. So he continually died to himself. And what he could have done was what his own son later did, Absalom. He could have conspired against Saul. He could have rallied enough people to himself at the gate and said, let's, let's charge against Saul. But instead, what does he do? He dies to himself. He entrusts himself to God. We see also in verse, um, I'm sorry, Psalm 54, you might have heard when you heard uh, in this chapter talk about when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us, that might, Psalm 54 might ring a bell. That's a psalm David wrote when the Ziphites had ratted him out. And there are two things I just want to draw out from that that psalm. Um, The first is, in the ESV, in verse 4 of Psalm 54, it says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. A better translation of that second part actually says, uh, The Lord um, helps them who uphold my life. So he's referring to Jonathan there. Jonathan is one who is, who is actually supporting him in this time. But the thing I actually want to draw even closer attention to is verse 7 at the end there. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Uh, again, I should have just quoted the, the version of this I want to quote to you. But um, that triumph there, KJV translates that as... as um, my eye has, has seen my own desires on my enemies. So after having died to himself, David, David's own, God's desires become his own, really. And these are resurrected desires that Saul, I'm sorry, that God is fulfilling for David. So all of us are a King Saul. Every one of us has wicked and dead hearts. This is the first time here. Welcome, Trinity. Um, every one of us, like David, we've exhausted our own efforts. We've despaired. And when seeing their own heart is like Saul, 
there's only one thing we can do. The only reason any of us can be saved is because God picks us up and what he does is he saves us from our own restless and sinful hearts. If you go to Paris today, you'll see a statue there of Napoleon. And what is, what is Napoleon's statue of himself look like at a hotel that's found there? It says, I've done this, I will do this. I've done this, I am doing this, I will do this. But his heart must have felt the impending doom that one day he too would die. This is the heart of the gospel. And we see it through, through places like in, um, with the Apostle Paul, our New Testament reading. Um, Paul himself was a man who loved to kill Christians in the start of the church. He prided himself in that. He thought he was doing a favor to people. But what happened to Saul? For brevity, I'll just say Saul became Paul. God let him die. He, he was given a new heart. He gave him new eyes through which to see everything. Uh, another pastor I, I, I listened to this week in this, this text of 1 Samuel 23, he, he said it like this. Um, there's this impossible paradox with the duties we have before God in our own lives and our inability to fulfill them. And based, it, what, what it leads us to is I, to say, I must do this. And to repeatedly fall on our faces and say, I can't do this. So I must do this. I can't do this. But God has done it. That is the only resolve that we can find here. I must do it. I can't do it. God has done it. God has showered his grace on me. We have to lay down our own desires, church, so that we are not consumed by them. You have to lay down your own desires, if you're non-Christian here, so that you are not consumed by them. When you see that your own heart is fatal, you have to go to the great physician. And he has a 100% success rate. When he claims us for his own, while it might be a lifelong process, he will succeed in what he's doing in your own heart, in your own responsibilities, when you feel like it's too much. We come to the gospel of Jesus and we see what kind of king he was. And what we can't do this morning is say, well, he did it and I have to do that too. No, we have to come to him with our own hearts Say, I don't care how much it feels like death to me, but the only joy that can be known is if I lay my own heart at the cross. The only joy that can be known is if I die again today in myself so that Christ would reign in me, so that the new Israel would reign in my own heart, in this church. We often look um, for the hand of God to show up where we want to see a miracle happen. But remember this morning that you, just like David, we have to lay all of that down. Reflect back on your own life for a moment with me. How many times has God given you exactly what you've wanted? 
Do you want to serve a God who's at your beck and call? Or do you want to serve a God who works all things providentially for your good and for his name? Your beck and call will never be what you need. We need Christ. So lay your own heart down today and you will be strengthened. If you're not a Christian, um, lay your heart down today. I'd love to talk to you after about that. He takes people like David who want to kill a man for being such a fool and he sustains them. He strengthens every exhausted fugitive and he guards their hearts. He proclaims that they are his. He takes those who say, um, those who don't see a way out of their own sin and what does he do? He takes husbands, husbands who... um, Husbands and wives who are at the end of their rope. And he, he bids them to come and die. That, that his lovely spirit will be able to fill them. They may have strength from this God. He takes citizens of America and Nigeria and China, the Middle East, all of those places, and he bids them Come and die that you, do, that you may be strengthened and be given to a new kingdom. Over and over again, this is how God works in all places. He bids us to come and die. And then what does he do? Um, look, look back with me at the end of, of 1 Samuel 23. At the very end there... Um, We've, we've been traveling. David has been fleeing through Israel further into the wilderness, and he comes to an oasis. He comes to, um, he lived in the strongholds of Engedi. So in the, the places where, where he, he least expected it in having to flee to the wilderness, God not only, just like last week we talked about, God not only um, gave David manna, from heaven, he gave him bread of heaven, the showbread. He also gives water, and he leads his own flock beside still water. You might be thinking there of, of Psalm 23. He leads his own sheep beside still water. So remember that today, church, that he, in the places you might, we might find ourselves like David and for David, he takes his own. And he provides for them always by the means that he says are best for the story he's placed us in. And not only that, but he has also given us, as we wrap up our time here, he's given us a priest far greater than Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech. And let me just read for you in brief here from from Hebrews 4. Since therefore, I'm sorry, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So as we close and prepare for communion, would you Remember that today. Come to him 
draw near with confidence that we may receive help in the time of need.